0: Welcome to the Change Africa Podcast, where we bring you stories of inspiring individuals and thought leaders leading Africa's transformation. I'm your host, Isaac Kodiodenu Abwa, and together with my co-host, Daniel Merki, we'll be exploring diverse perspectives, challenges, and opportunities for growth and development on the continent every week. Each episode, we delve into a different aspect of African life, featuring knowledgeable and engaging guests who provide unique insights and a fresh perspective on the issues affecting the continent across a wide range of topics from economics to culture and social issues. So whether you're already well-versed in African affairs, or you're just starting to explore this fascinating and complex part of the world, the Change Africa podcast is an excellent resource for you. Sit back and enjoy another thought-provoking discussion that will inform and challenge you to expand your understanding of Africa. My name is Isaac Kojore Noabwa. You're welcome to the Change Africa podcast. And I'm here with my usual co-host, Daniel Kukumiraki. And today we're going to have an enlightening conversation around technology, the continent, and marketing with someone who has been a stronghold in that industry for a couple of decades now. He is Nzamo Masito, who is the Chief Marketing Officer at Google Africa. Nzamo, thank you very much for joining us on the Change Africa podcast.
1: Super, thank you very much. You're welcome.
0: What I find intriguing about you is that obviously, for someone like your caliber, you don't need to write anything about yourself on LinkedIn. But your LinkedIn profile takes a very unusual approach at talking about some of the things that you believe in life. And I want to explore the foundations of that to start the conversation. You say a couple of things, some of them are very popular. How you value Ubuntu, respect, freedom. What I am particularly interested in to start with is winning and how you define winning. You say winning is consistently times competitively times profitable times responsible. And you have someone who definitely has a trajectory of winning. Maybe your story doesn't, at least in public, doesn't profile your failures that much. But I'd like to understand where that framework of winning comes from.
1: I had a great mentor growing up, and he's Dutch. His name is Case Kradov, and he's kind of like a brother, friend. And one of the things he said to me
0: a long time ago,
1: actually, and it was again confirmed a few years back, was never appeal to sympathy. Always appeal to interest. And also, when you appeal to interest, Appeal with competence, with great character, which is your values, and competence is ability and just excellence and meritocracy and just getting shit done and getting it done well. And that's competence and then character, and then wrap it up with consistency. Because then he says that if you do these things well, then you're more likely. When you win, it's a win that will be sustainable. But if you win and you lack character, great values, that win is weak and it's unsustainable. And whereas if you win with great character, which is integrity, trust, responsibility, all of that, you tend to have more sustainable wins, which then attracts the right energy around you. And then you have more people who want you on their corner, who want to work with you, who want to support you as well, who like you. They like your energy because they like what you stand for, which is competence and character wrapped in consistency.
0: Now, that's a very interesting model for success. How do you feel like this model has helped you in your career so far? One of the things that Again, learning about you is who is this chief marketing officer at a global giant like Google who at the start of the conversation says, I've not worn a, a shirt in a couple of years. So you are definitely an outcast of a sort, at least in the visual outlook. How does that define differ? like how different you are? Because again, in learning about you, you are this very successful professional who takes a very different outlook at life and maybe seem more philosophical than, than the average professional will be. Obviously you have a PhD, so you're an academic as well. How do you combine those
1: different lifestyles? I quickly learned that there's always these nice sayings. When I started working, I was told that be yourself, everyone else is taken. So don't try to be everyone else because all those personas are taken already and don't copy paste other people and the more you can be you the more likely you will be memorable and the more you're trying to be someone else then they will remember that person not you and all you've done is help the other person build their brand and not yours so i the reason then freedom became important to me it was that partly because i was born under upper date and I know how it feels like not to be free and I know how to be judged on purely on the basis of your skin color and nothing else and so I know absence of freedom and so I always wanted to be free and one of the ways is free whether it be economically mentally physically spiritually I just want to be free and I want to be free to be me and I think what has helped, whether it be I'm in mean, corporate or outside corporate, is the need to be free is really strong. And it helps that I have also tried to make sure that I'm not broke because I genuinely think that freedom without financial freedom is unsustainable. Because you need to not be broke if you're going to want to have courage to speak truth to power. It's harder. I found it. Someone who grew up in poverty and who grew up under scarcity a lot, it is very hard to be courageous and broke. I, I really found it. Some people, maybe not, but for me, who grew up in places like Kibera, uh, South Africa, Cape Town, informal townships and informal settlements, and I know scarcity and I know that I become risk averse when I feel scarcity, when I feel poor, I'm really, I'm on a survival mode. I'm not thriving, I'm just surviving. Whereas when I seek freedom that is cushioned by economic freedom, I'm just a lot more freer to speak my mind, to be competent, and also be willing to fail. Because that's another thing with freedom is that when, when you're when you seeking winning and you must also be comfortable with losing because you're not going to win all the time. I mean, when I watch sport, even now I'm watching rugby and cricket, football. Even Messi and Ronaldo hasn't won everything. They've lost some Champions League. They've lost some trophies. Even now I watch England playing South Africa, semi-finals, rugby, and England played well, but they lost. And you sometimes play well and lose and sometimes you play okay like South Africa and win. It happens, and it happened to me all the time. So how I blend it for me, it's, it's just the clarity of knowing that my values are freedom, respect and Ubuntu. And so everything that I do must match those three values and it must enhance those three values. Who I hang out with is also determined by these three values. Which jobs I take is also determined by these three values. Who I date, determined by these three values. So I just use them as my North Star. And then losing or winning, I've never had anyone saying that because I've lost, now I don't need to respect anyone. Because I've won, I don't need to show respect. Because I'm losing, I don't need freedom. Because I'm winning, I need less freedom. Or because I'm losing or winning, I need less Ubuntu, which is becoming more communal. I am because we are. I haven't, that equation doesn't make sense to me. So I know whether I'm losing or winning, I still need to have Ubuntu, I still need freedom, and I still need to be respectful. And I demand to be respected. So that's how it shows up in my world and luckily, I've never needed, I've never worked for a company that you wear suits. I know some industries it's important because perception is reality. Some industries are more risk averse or more. Um, I mean, when you're handling people's money, banking, financial sector, sometimes looking the part gives people confidence that you're not going to screw up their money, hard end money. Maybe me coming up with my bucket hat and this way T-shirt doesn't give confidence that you're not going to lose your money. So I understand that. However, I was liking that when I started at Unilever, they had just let go of formal wear and you could wear whatever you want. When I joined Nike, I mean, it's Nike, so you could wear Nike clothes, whatever you want, even swimming costumes if you wanted to. And then when I work at Vodafone, I didn't need to. And then at Google, I didn't need to. So I've just been lucky that I've never really worked at a place that measured my competence on appearance, clothes appearance. I've been lucky in that clothes in tech, for example, are not really a measure of competence or measure of whatever has to do with getting the job done well. Whereas in some industries, I genuinely understand why you need to look the part. I like how you balance it with the reality check,
0: because there are some industries that obviously do that. So I like that. When I speak to people who are from your age, some of them much older than you, who are from the apartheid system, who lived in systems of oppression, there is this natural charisma, confidence that they have in their freedom. The recognition from those times, recognition of the pain that they went through, and the honor of coming having come from those times, and a more philosophical mindset to freedom that I don't think the average person who's not had the experience appreciate, and even a more clarity to life and just the beauty of embracing the freedom they have. Not to say that. Anybody should appreciate that. But do you also have that... Do you have that reckoning that people who experience those things... One of the early conversations that we had was with Lucy Mbabasi. Lucy lost a lot of his family in the Rwandan genocide. And the reflection that she has, for example, on that is very profound than the average person who has not gone through it would ever have it. And I understand the the urgency of those situations i understand how big those they are but such clarity obviously is good for everyone how do you conceptualize having had that clarity and that experience as i don't know if i'm framing it as an advantage how do you feel like that places you to be a person of more value advantageously over others because of
1: those experiences Without sounding like I am glorifying apartheid, of course I would have loved to have been born not in apartheid, and I would love to have been born in an easier life. Like most people, I would like to have been born in wealth or no poverty. (laughs) I'm not sure I have a need to have been born not black, so that one I don't really have, but I do have a need to have been born not poor. Or, you know, I, or present father, so those ones are needs that I wish I would have, at least. But the universe decided that I'll be unlucky and lucky to have been born under apartheid. I must say, though, for me, it this the insights that I have were gained when I left South Africa. So I was in the US, and I was seventeen or sixteen, and I was in Washington DC, and. and One of the greatest revelations for me, a gift from the gods, was that I went to Anacostia looking for black people. And in there, I saw a church, and really beautiful church, as always with black people and poverty. There are always three things you will see. A church, alcohol, tavern, place selling alcohol, and gambling. Those three seem to be the opium of the poor. So those three, so I get there, I see the church, and it's the slums, like serious project, drug dealers, drug addicts, and I go in the church because I'm thinking black people don't rob each other inside the church. So at that time, anyway, things have changed now. And so I went in and I looked up, and they had the painting of the Last Supper, Jesus and and Mary, whom I consider Jesus' number one disciple, and the other 12 men, disciples. And I looked up, and Jesus was black, and he had dreadlocks. And the other disciples had cornrows, natural hair, Afro with a comb in it, and all of that. I was so confused because I've never seen that image before. And the only image of Jesus I've seen was Blue eye, um, Kelly, or long hair, probably uses pantine or head and shoulders, something like that. And I've never seen a Jesus with dreadlocks and who looked like me with round nose and the, and the disciples looked like me. They look like all of Africa, basically in one image. It's as if Jesus went to all of Africa picking 12 disciples and in one image, and I, I remember sh- shouting out loud inside the church. No, this can't be. And then an old man came to me and said, "Why not, young blood? And why not? Why can't God be in your image? And 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 why not? And that why not was for me the greatest gift. That painting for first, and the why not from the elder, the wise elder." were greatest gifts for me because when I came, went back to Tendley Town, I went to Howard University and I went to the African library section, studied who am I, where I come from, where does religion come from, how was religion pre-colonization, how were things pre-colonization, how are things during colonization, neo-colonization. So all of that, that's when I started having an appreciation. I had to leave my country. Because in my country, all the books I read, even including Steve Beagle, I write what I like. I only read it when I was in the US because it was banned in South Africa at the time. And so it gave me a great insight that I'm grateful that I had to leave my country, that when I came back, I had more appreciation for where I grew up, the apartheid experience, how I really had an inferiority complex. And I genuinely thought, to be black equals inferior. And because in my history we were told that we should be grateful that white people came to save us and that we were heathens, barbaric, not intelligent, never invented anything, which I now know it's a lie. But when I was age one to 16, I thought it was the truth. And until I had to unlearn and decolonize my own mind. So I would say that leaving the country going to another country and learning and reading and surrounded by elders who were wiser than me and more confident. I must say that the first time I saw confidence was actually a Nigerian and an African-American. Those two helped me model what I thought confidence from a black person looks like. Before then, I don't think I had seen it other than Steve Biko reading Steve Biko's book, but I hadn't seen Steve Biko in person. But when I met the Nigerians and I met African-Americans and they just had this confidence and oozing with confidence, that's the kind of benchmark I then used as how confidence look like and how to bet on yourself looks like. And for me, I have African-Americans and Nigerians to thank for that.
0: That's a very great reflection on that experience. And it's it's, it's almost synonymous to that Star Wars-like moment of a Yoda, <laughs> a Yoda meeting a young Jedi and just giving him the words that changes life forever. Let's transition to your professional life. You went to the U.S., came back, schooled. How did you fall into <laughs> or how did you purposefully pursue that career
1: beginning at unilever in marketing i must say for me i'm not one of those people who can claim that i was intentional deliberate proactive i was clear no for me i was not i was confused as hell i actually really didn't know what i wanted to be or wanted to do At the core, what I always wanted growing up was to be a teacher, a preacher, and a healer. Those were the three things I was actually, but they were not cool. So whenever you got asked, what do you want to be? I got ashamed of saying preacher, healer, teacher, because other people were saying engineer, doctor, physicist. So I thought it's not cool to say teacher, preacher, healer. But at the core of all these three things, it's about human behavior. It's why people do the things they do and how to influence behavior, how to be a choice architect and decision maker, architect for people. And but I didn't see it at that time. So when I was at UCT, I just went, I was teaching actually, which I was fulfilling my, my number one need to teach. But then I thought, I don't know how to do interviews well. So I went to do a mock-up interview at the careers office which was in partnership with companies. And one of those companies was Unilever. So I did the mock-up interview. They gave me feedback on how I did. But then the HR person there said to me, hey, we are running interviews. Would you like to come and be in a panel interview for a real job at Unilever? Then I thought, cool, I'll take it because I wanted to buy my mother a house. And I wanted to move my mother out of the slums. And I wanted to move my mother out of Kyliecha. Google it into a suburb, and also I wanted to move my sisters out because I grew up with gangsters and drug dealers, and it was getting more violent with drug addiction and all of that. So, and as a teacher, you don't earn much. It's a vocation that doesn't pay, unfortunately, which I think teachers should be paid hundred times more, but they are not. We don't seem to value teachers anymore in society, and we pay them less. And so I left teaching. In honesty, I was not chasing a passion. I was just chasing money. And I was chasing security, and I wanted to buy my mother a house. That is the honest reason to move. And also, I heard that Unilever was the number one company at that time in marketing. So I wanted to join number one. So I made a decision alien life that UCT was the number one university in Africa, and that's where I joined. Unilever was the number one FMCG, CPG company, especially at that time, globally. So I joined that because I just wanted to hang out with number ones, because I wanted to be a number one, and I wanted to hang out with number ones. And that's how I joined Unilever. Only when I was at Unilever doing market research, statistical analysis, then I realized, oh, okay, actually, I'm going to do market research. I'm going to do consumer behavior At some point, I'm going to join media. At some point, I'm going to do marketing and become a brand manager, marketing manager, marketing director, a VP, run a business at Unilever. But that only came maybe two years or three inside Unilever, that inside. But I didn't have it earlier on. So I always say to people, don't worry if you're confused. And don't worry if you're not clear. We're not all lucky enough that from the get-go, we are clear. But with time, it 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 becomes clear. How do you,
0: or how does anyone, how do you provide a framework for anyone to dangle between the lack of surety in the moment, lack of clarity, and handing over yourself to the fate of time to unravel that clarity for you? Because people like to say that, and... It is good advice. I know it's good advice. But for someone who's in that moment, it's, it's, it's just impractical. How do you model a framework or what is your insight over the years that allows you to be comfortable with those two bargainings of, I am here and I'm unsure, but I also have to do the very unsure thing of handing over my to time, that if I hand over my to time and I just lead my course, I would eventually unravel the purpose.
1: So I have four things I always self-talk about. The first one I tell myself is certainty is the enemy of progress. If you want certainty, you don't want progress. The second thing I remind myself is faith is not without doubt. There's no such thing as Because you have faith, therefore you don't have doubt. Even Jesus on the cross said, Father, why have you forsaken me? On the cross. I mean, that guy had so much faith, he walked on water. But he still asked questions while he was on the cross. So faith is not without doubt. So you are still going to be doubtful. And it's actually a good thing. It means you're alive. It's healthy. The third thing I remind myself is courage is not without fear. Just because you have courage doesn't mean you don't have fear. And the only difference between anyone else who has courage, people have courage have fear, but they just push through. And those are the first three things I remind myself. I remind myself all the time that certainty is an enemy of progress. Second thing, Zamo remembered. I always say to myself, remember Zamo, Faith is not without doubt. Just be doubtful a lot. It's okay. As long as you don't let it become chronic. As long as you don't let fear become chronic. And then the last thing I always remind myself is, I am the son of God, but I'm not God. So I'm not omniscient. I don't know what's around the corner. So because I don't know what's around the corner, the only thing I can do is just keep it moving. And what's around the corner ends up not being what I wanted, then I'll find another corner and I'll keep it moving there as well. If I found in there also not what I want, I'll keep it moving. And that's just life. Unfortunately, we don't have certainty. We, we don't have it. We're actually riddled with doubt. And so if you if i what I'm saying to people that in the in the time where you are not clear. Still keep it moving. I genuinely mean it. Just keep it moving, and it will work out. It might not work out. Hey, shit happens. Sometimes it work out. Sometimes it doesn't work out. <laughs> but that's for everyone under the sun. So it's not unique to you only. It's not unique to me only. And you will win some. You will lose some. And that's just gonna be life. But if you are wanting certainty and you want God to speak to you directly and even when God did speak to people directly, majority of them doubted, majority of them said no. I mean, even when people who saw a burning bush, they still said, no, I can't do that, I'm a starter. Oh, no, I can't do that. Oh, no. Imagine for us, the guy doesn't come anymore to talk to us directly. He stopped doing that stuff in the Old Testament, or if we like, in New Testament. He doesn't do it, and even in the Quran, God stopped a long time ago, even in the Torah, it stopped a long time ago to speak directly, it seems. So the only thing we can do now is, when you feel that doubt, push through. When you feel that fear, know that it's also courage, whispering. When you feel that doubt, know it's faith, whispering. And you just keep it moving. And it will work out. It won't. I can't tell you, dude, sitting here with you now, that I knew that... I will be working at Vodafone London, or I will be with Nike leading World Cup for Nike. I will be with Google CMO Africa. I can't tell you that stuff. I actually don't even know. All I just did was just keep it moving and plotting and hoping. That's a great answer to the the question.
0: What I want to know next is, your career progression was fast, unless, unless you disagree with me, but you can see from your trajectory of your career that you went in as a newbie and progressed quite fast, and that allowed you to take on big projects and big roles. My question is 2 prong. First, what do you attribute to that fast trajectory of growth in your career? Second, as what was the biggest project that you took on that you were most afraid of failure.
1: So I would say the I attribute my success, you're right, to a village for me. It takes a village. I got lucky that even when I joined Unilever, I had a great sponsors. Somehow they trusted me, they took an interest in me, they backed me. Even when I made mistakes, they were there to shield, protect, defend, And then privately, they will still tell me, oh, there you fucked up. There you made a mistake. There you were wrong. Here's how you were wrong. And they will be able to not hang my dirty linen in public, but they were still hard. And they will give me tough love. They will give me feedback on the sport. They will be there for me. So I would say I was liking that I had great sponsors. I was also liking that I got feedback on the sport. And I got radical candor feedback. No cushioning. No, it was just hard. That kind of feedback when you go home, you are in pain. It's not nice. And you can't sleep because you feel like that was harsh. But you know deep down that person means well. They really have your back. They want you to grow. So the first two things for me was just I had great sponsors. I had great feedback. And the sponsors are the people who talk for you and who talk about you. Who open doors for you. Promotions incorporate and not, competence is not enough. Yes, as a foundation, you need to be competent. You need to get things done. You need to get them done well, on time, in full. That is a given. You cannot not be competent because sponsors don't beg incompetent people unless maybe your father owns the company and you are incompetent. Then they'll have to suck up to your father but if your father and mother don't own the company you need to be competent and then you need to be able to lift others up those for me i consider foundational stuff and then you need to lift yourself up be curious learn develop all of that lifting yourself up lifting others up getting shit done and getting it done well those are foundational but they are not enough to rise up in the corporate world you still need sponsors, you need coaches, you need people who are going to mentor you. Those I would say, that, and then you need a lot of feedback and useful feedback, not just um, you are nice or you are good. That's useless feedback. I mean useful feedback that helps you grow, that helps you progress. I would say for me, those were the things. And then the last thing for me was, getting people who are helping you not to be afraid to jump, because when I left Unilever, that was my already my comfort zone. Now, I mean, I was VP. I'm in the board. I'm running the foods business, and I know Unilever. It's over close to a decade being there. I know the people. People know me. I've got backers, sponsors, all the way up high at Unilever. So I'm kind of in a good space, and then. I wanted to run the World Cup. Now, to answer your second question on something that I was really scared and full of doubt was joining Nike and asking to be given the responsibility to lead the World Cup. And this is a global project, and this is happening for the first time in Africa. All eyes on it, and Nike invest in World Cups. Nike wants to win in World Cups or Olympics or big games and big events. And I've never ran an event like that before. I've never marketed Nike, a global brand, that before. So I was scared and I was doubtful. And again, I go back to my self-talk. Courage is not absence of fear. Doubt, faith is not absence of doubt. And, and also remember my name. My name is Mzam. Just try it. The Nike logo is just do it. Mine is sometimes just try it. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? I will fail, but I will have a great fail story. Because what I know now with companies and my corporate career, they always ask you questions anyway. Tell us about a time when you failed. If I fail, then I better make sure I pay attention to how I fail and create a great story, how I failed, what I learned. So I already told myself, "Ah, don't worry, Zamu. If you fail, just write a great narrative on failure. Then you can use it when being interviewed. Tell us about the time you fail. I will nail that interview because I've got a great failure story. So I didn't worry about that. So, but I was still really, really deep down, full of doubt, low self-esteem, not sure if I'm going to do it or not. But I also realized that if I succeeded at Unilever and I made it all the way to VP, Why would I not succeed at Nike? Those are some of the questions that I have to ask myself. But I was full of doubt. And I was lucky in that, again, at Nike, I was surrounded by great sponsors, great mentors, great coaches who were willing to back me, willing to support, willing to shield, fund things, make mistakes, lose, win. And they were willing to do that for me. And so then I got lucky in that way. And we made in a success of the World Cup at Nike. So that for me would have been my one of my kind of greatest, either than parenting, which still scares the shit out of me. Nike was the part in my working career that I thought I took a leap of faith.
0: When you mentioned the foundational qualities that are required, it sounds... You make it sound very basic, but I'm still wondering. Of course, you described your trajectory and how you developed within the career, but before that, what was the de- what's the pathway or the development towards those foundational qualities that
1: you required? Okay, so mine was my first three months to six months of joining Unilever. I was silent. I was scared. I was full of doubt. I suffered from an imposter syndrome. I suffered from an inferiority complex, partly because apartheid was just ended, but I still had apartheid in my mind. And like, for example, I also had an inferiority complex with English. I, I thought like, because I didn't go to a private school, I didn't speak English fluently. It didn't, it meant maybe I'm not smart enough. I'm not competent enough until I had to have a a mentor and a sponsor who helped me and asked me to go to therapy. And so I started therapy early and I went to therapy to understand me and to increase self-awareness and to understand what happened to me, to understand like the Oprah book that says what happened to you, to understand my childhood woundings, traumas, to just understand how I show up, how I score on goals, how I blame others for my own mistakes, and how I need to show up, and all of that, that helped a lot. For me, I would say having a person who asked me to go to therapy, because I always thought therapy is for people who are not well, or if you have a mental condition, then you go to therapy. But actually, really, they helped me go into therapy because it really helped me understand and increased self-awareness. And the more self-aware I became, the more self-esteem I had, the more courage I had to speak up for myself. And then in meetings I could speak up and I stopped um, self-doubting myself. Because earlier on the first three, six months, before I said something, I would be like those people who set the exam write the exam, mark the exam, moderate the exam. Before I say something, I'm already trying to work out if it's smart, if it's clever, then I don't say it. And then someone else, let's say another Daniel in that meeting, says exactly the thing I thought about 20 minutes ago. And everyone says, oh, Daniel, that is smart. And I'm thinking in my head, oh, shit, I thought about that thing 30 minutes ago, but I was scared to say it because I thought it's not smart enough. It's not clever enough. And I stopped doing all of that stuff. And and also my therapist always made me realize, for example, when Einstein wrote his paper, I don't think he was thinking, whoa, E equals MC squared. This is the smartest thing I've ever thought. Well, I mean, his paper, most some of his papers were rejected earlier on, even though he became a Nobel Prize winner. No clever person or people who have won Nobel Prizes or done amazing things are sitting Thinking, before I submit it, let me check if it's clever. Let me check if it's comp no, they just back themselves and say whatever needs to be said that is coming from their head. If it's stupid, then you are stupid for a second and wise for life. Might as well do that and say nothing. So that those I would say for me, my foundational was self awareness. And self awareness from therapy. And i would always encourage people most companies have these employee care programs and you can have an, um, therapy sessions for maybe first 10 or eight for free or some of them even offer coaches and mentors i will encourage early on in your career to use that to use those resources don't wait until you have anxiety panic disorder, depression, all of that. Don't wait. Get in and immediately ask for a coach or mentor or therapist and go to, especially for black men. We don't like therapy because our masculinity is formed on therapy means equals weak. And that's actually wrong. We need to change this. Even as black male Africans we need to change this narrative that therapy equals weak because actually therapy and vulnerability equals strong. Men who can be vulnerable who are strong. So we need to stop this thing that, no, you go to therapy, then there must something wrong with you. It's not always that. Even if there is something wrong with me, so what that I'm going to therapy? It's not a sign of weakness. It's actually a sign of strength to admit that there is something wrong with me and I need help. And we need as black males to really, really stop this myth and kill it because we are dying faster than women. Four or five, I would say X, of all completed suicides are by men. We, com- we commit completed suicides more than women do. Women might attempt suicide, but we die violently, and all about things that we could have solved through talking, through opening up, through being vulnerable. So I would say same ingredient for work, same ingredient for being successful at work. Therapy for me was my number one foundational ticket.
0: Let's talk about your work at Google now, because if we dive into all this brilliance, we might not ever actually touch that. What is your
1: mandate at Google? So my mandate at Google is, let me start with the Google mission, which is to organize the world's information, make it universally accessible and useful and helpful. This is the mission. The values, the Google values is respect. Respect each other, respect the opportunity, respect the user. Those are the two things that are my North Star, and that is my mission, and that is my mandate, is to bring that mission and the value to life in Africa, because that mission is incomplete without Africa, because the mission says, organize the world's information. It doesn't say Europe or the West-only information. It says the world's information. That includes Africa. And then it says, make it universally accessible, which includes Africans. And then it says, helpful and useful, which also includes Africans. Make it useful and helpful for all Africans. So that is at the core my mandate. And of course, all do it. And while maximizing shareholder value at a profit, it's not a charity NGO at a profit maximizing shareholder value, but do it in a bold and responsible way. So do not become irresponsible. Uphold respect and bring the mission to life in Africa. I would say that is at the core. Whether I do it with search, I do it with YouTube, I do it with AI, I do it with BARD, I do it with um, generative search experience, I do it with maps or Ways, I do it with cloud, any of the Google products and services, my job is to bring the mission to life in Africa and wrap it in strong values and do it with boldness and be responsible. I like that at the end,
0: you brought the crisscrossing, interfacing branches of Google's very, very, very multidiverse universe into view and how your work touches on all of that. For you, what is the most exciting part of your work, at least going forward? I don't, I mean, I'm particularly excited about AI and the AI race. And I I want us to talk about that probably later on. What's the most exciting part about your work at Google?
1: The first part that is exciting for me is lifting others up. Just developing people, growing people, seeing people grow. Maybe because the teacher, the healer and preacher in me is is always that's my go-to place first. Is just seeing people grow and develop and 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 seeing them flourish and thriving, that's for me will be the first thing. Then the second thing that's most exciting to me is using the Google products and services, whether it be search, YouTube, in democratizing opportunity for everyone, and being able to um One of my colleagues ex-colleagues now the first time he studied ai um it was through youtube before he even did a degree in ai and now he has a phd in ai it was through youtube imagine youtube democratizing ai knowledge for everyone because where he grew up in senegal at that time they were not offering ai courses but through youtube he studied ai and i had other people who studied businesses using YouTube or using search and all of that. So for me, it's just seeing businesses thrive, seeing especially young people since Africa is young, hustling, starting their own businesses, making money now and career pivoting with Google career certificates and getting into cybersecurity, cloud computing and getting into AI. And, And just for me, those are the things that's just excites me and the, the the thing that's recently exciting me is that we've launched two engineering really exciting centers one in Ghana the AI research center in Ghana where we are really using AI to simplify complexity in uh, sustainable development goals agriculture education health all of that within Africa and then the second one is we've just opened an engineering product development center in nairobi where we are now hiring engineers to build for africans by africans for search for youtube for platforms and ecosystem for android all of that imagine for me that's like wow that's other than the fact that sunda and ruth sunda ruth being our cfo and africa champion and sunda they announced one billion dollar investment to Africa. Those are some of the things for me that excite me a lot in being at Google and in Africa. Google for the past few decades
0: has been probably the most important product in the world. And you talk about data. Very, very enthusiastic about data because I am also building a tech company and data is one of those things that draws africa back from stepping into the new technological age of ai all of that what are some of google's effort to help africa catch up in terms of consolidating data across the internet but also across maybe obviously it might not be in the framework of what google does but for example there is huge undiscovered data around africa's say medicine Africa's history still yet to be discovered. Africa's commerce, a lot of data sitting around somewhere that are siloed. Are there thoughts, because you said at the executive level of Google, are there there thoughts, are there conversations around how we can mobilize, continue to build systems to mobilize Africa's data and consolidate Africa's data towards the SDGs, which is very critical in your work?
1: So the way we look at it before you even jump into data ours is you have 800 million africans that are still offline so before we can even jump into data we also need to talk about how do you get 850 million africans online to benefit from this um, tech multiplier or benefit from technology so that's the first part And even within that, you have 300 million plus Africans that are online, but the bulk of those Africans are using basic and feature phones. So the first start is not even data. The first start is, it's not either or by the way, but the first start is how do we make sure all Africans, 1.2, 1.3 billion who are average median age, 18, 19 are online? with the right smart device, with affordable data, and 4G, 5G enabled networks. That's the first start. So that, as Google, we need partners. We need to partner with telecoms, likes of MTN, Vodacom, Orange, you name it, Glow. We need to partner. We can't do it on our own. So that we can deliver affordable smart devices Similar to what India is doing with Reliance Geo and other partners, below thirty dollars, twenty dollars smart devices. Which is then we partner with OEMs like Transion, Huawei, Samsung, you name it. We need to partner with device manufacturers to deliver devices that are affordable and smart devices for every child. Imagine if you can think of a child in primary school already with a smart device, a connected school, with a connected smart device. That's where we need to start. The second piece is digital education, digital literacy. We need to educate every African. Our curriculum in Africa needs to be more pro-technology, needs to be more pro-coding, more pro- Um, AI, more pro-quantum computing, more pro all of these technological trends and innovations, more pro, not anti, but pro, more pro to coming up with white papers on how to regulate technology in a productive and responsible and bold way in partnership with government. There is no way we will be able to do these things without partnering with government, without being willing to be regulated in a responsible and bold way. And then the third piece is also then, once we've done the access to technology with smart devices, affordable technology, affordable network infrastructure, we educate everyone. And we make sure that everyone is educated from primary school all the way up to you are 90 and 100. You are digital literate and digital savvy. And then the part that then you talk about is how do we make sure that Africa is well represented online? I mean, Africa has over 2000 languages. That's a lot of languages that we need to make sure they are online. For example, as Google now, we have a team sitting in Nairobi that uh, we've hired a language manager for Africa where we're going to start thinking about how do you develop Swahili fully online how do you develop hausa yoruba Amric, zulu afrikaans you name it all these major languages that are in africa how do you develop them online how do we make sure they flourish because if you don't develop language you are talking about data i'm just telling you the foundation of that data is language how do we make sure that you can move swahili from audio to text and from text to audio seamlessly? How do you make sure that you have variations of Zulu or Swahili or Yoruba or Hausa? Because there's no one Yoruba, Hausa, or Swahili. The Swahili spoken in Tanzania and the Swahili spoken in Kenya might not be copy-paste. Even within Kenya, whether you go north or south or east, the Swahili might vary. How do you make sure you do that respectfully, boldly, and responsibly? So there's a lot of work that's going on now, as I'm talking to you with the team at Google, where we're focusing on language as a foundation for making sure that we have quality data, we have clean data, clean first party data, all of that. So I agree with you that data is very important, but it also has to be clean. It also has to be responsible. It also has to um, respect privacy. It also has to respect regulation. So all of that, those are some of the things that we also need to do. Partner with the African Union, for example, where we aligned ourselves to the African Union. We aligned ourselves to African governments in ensuring that we are a responsible yet bold partner aligned to and respecting country regulations, continental regulations. So those are the things I would say uh, important, we, we are thinking about, we are actually working on as we speak, we are writing white papers, white papers, we are contributing to white papers within partnership with government, we are also partnering with OEMs, telcos, ISPs to ensure that the Africa that we want, this digital revolution, revolution and digital transformation truly comes to life in Africa. And we're not gonna be able to do this if we don't have enough engineers, if we don't have enough AI experts in Africa. So we need to get the foundation right as well while building the data well.
0: No, this is great work. A lot of what you are saying are big picture, high investments. What is Google's commitment to such massive investments? I know of the centers that are already been built. Are there already, because I do not know, Are there already funds that are allocated to enable these partnerships, to enable these
1: OEMs, to possibly build these low-cost phones? Let me start with the area. Remember Google announced $1 billion investment to Africa via Sunda and confirmed by Ruth Porad, our CFO. Now, the first part you think about is access to technology. The first investment we had to make is, how do you make a basic feature phone work well with Android? So we invested in launching Android Go. So for most people who have smartphones, they don't realize that you have actually Android Go, which works efficiently and helps people with basic smart feature phones to work well with those phones using the operating system, using Android Go as a great operating system we even launched at some point youtube go which is light youtube for people whom they can afford data they don't always have connectivity or reliable connectivity so that's the first foundation which is and also we do co-investment with oems and with telcos in pushing for affordable data affordable data plans on youtube affordable data plans Generally, and the price of data has been declining year on year, by the way. So we should be thanking telcos for reducing the price of data year on year. It can still go down, it should, but we should also acknowledge that it has been going down year on year. Then the other areas, for example, has been startups. We've invested close to over $100 million on Google for startups. We've even launched programs now, Google Accelerator AI Startups. So to make sure the ecosystem of startups that are using AI is well-funded and also well-supported. The other area is developers. We've launched not long, actually maybe a year or two ago, a scholarship for developers in Africa, where we want to train 100,000 developers in Africa, based in Africa, developing for Africa, not just for Google, but becoming a responsible citizen in the entire continent. And then we not only did that, we, now we're going to be announcing a cloud regional centre. The first one's going to be in South Africa. That's a huge investment. The other investment we did was an undersea cable all the way up from north of Africa, down all the way to Cape Town, the tip south of Africa, an undersea cable to help with data storage, data flows, data speeds, and all of that to even reduce data, afford- uh, date, make data even more affordable. So those are some of the things that we are doing now, including training entrepreneurs via Hustle Academy, where we're helping entrepreneurs get online, help entrepreneurs grow their businesses online. Because we know that businesses that are online and offline grow faster than businesses that are just offline. So those are some of the things. There's a lot. I'm just mentioning a few of the things that are top of mind to me that we are doing now in demonstrating that we want to be bold and responsible. Those
0: are huge commitments to Africa's development, like you said. And we're excited to see those continual investments and growth. And hopefully other companies do that. Because I wanted you to highlight them because I already know Google is doing so much that people do not know of them. Obviously, a particular Interest now in the age of technology is artificial intelligence. What people don't know is that Google actually, because I've been following the space for some time, is the company that set off the the new age of artificial intelligence in generative AI applications, generative AI technology. With a paper called "Attention Is All you, Attention Is All You Need" by Google um, researchers that really talked about transformer models. That then. People like, companies like OpenAI have used those models to then build. But arguably, people feel Google might be behind in the AI race with a lot of generative AI tech being built that seem to have changed the way of search. To to For some people, Microsoft's investment has kind of re- resonated. The dying bang bank is now, I think now people use it. How does Google position itself in this new AI race, and what is the clarity that Google has around really what AI's opportunity is, and maybe it's not actually rushing to be in competition with some of these other competitors, but has its own clarity on what it is doing
1: in in building
0: general purpose AI.
1: I'm glad you mentioned the fact that Google, early long before AI with the talk of the town, Google had already, even when Sundar took over as CEO, one of the things he announced was that we're going to be an AI-fest company. And even before then, we had already published papers on AI. And also, what people always forget is that Search had already had AI features long before we announced AI. I mean, things like when you now use Google Lens, when you do Google Translate, when you do autocomplete, On search, that's also AI. So earlier on, but what I have come to understand from the company was that we need to do this in a bold way, but in a responsible way. And the most important key thing here is responsible and bold. So it is not in our interest as Google to be rushing to chase others because what we know for sure in the long run is that better always beats beats first. If you think about Google earlier on, Google was not the first search engine, but now it's the best, better than everyone else's search engine. Google was not the first Chrome or or web operating, but now it is. So better in the long run, done responsibly, will always beat first. So I think the most important thing is that this is done responsibly. I mean, if you watch... Um, Google Cloud Next, you will see that almost over 70% of all generative AI unicorns use Google Cloud. And this is 70% of AI companies now who are on generative AI, they are using Google Cloud platforms, GCP. So that immediately should tell you that I don't necessarily believe that Google is behind and I also don't believe that I genuinely believe that Google did the right thing and the most responsible thing to not rush into launching Bud or into getting into the uh, generative space and rather do it responsibly slowly and experiment and learn and also work in partnership with governments on regulation and all of that and also be honest with the consumers that it's an experiment and we are learning because it's still at its infant stage, development stage. So I think the best way to do this is to do it boldly and responsibly. And I genuinely feel that if I look at Google current products and services, they are way on track and ahead and well-developed and embedding AI already in all of them. If you look at the announcements we made on YouTube, on announcements using AI features on YouTube, in video creation for creators, for developers, that's already there. If you look at Vertex AI that we've launched, and the fact that the two of the best AI companies, including Google DeepMind, they are part of Google. So if I look at it in that way, I'm actually very confident that Google is not behind. I'm actually confident that it's the better way to do and launch AI is to do it responsibly and boldly and the most important thing, responsibly. Let's talk
0: about the future of AI for Africa. What are your thoughts on how AI is going to transform and impact Africa? We know that people like Mustafa Sisei led the Center of Research, uh, AI Research, led programs at AIMS to, to make sure that the Nesta Einstein Initiative build people in the field of artificial intelligence and machine learning. So some of the foundational work, obviously has been a lot of google led initiatives how does that progress in, in, into the future with a focus on africa how do Africa's as a skill benefit from large language models benefit from generative ai and help our fundamental problems that's what i'm my concern very fundamental problems that you know some of the problems that the world the the, the West has have a leapfrog, are still things that we need to think about. And how does AI help
1: us gain an, an advantage in trying to solve these problems faster? I'm glad you used the word fundamental problems, because the way we see AI is that doing it boldly and responsibly also includes making AI helpful and useful for every African. And how we do that, it also goes back to sustainable development goals. So the foundation, the fundamental things are education, health, agriculture, uh, income inequality, gender equality. How do we use AI? Just using those ones as examples. For example, agriculture. I know that the team are working on a lot of using AI tools, for example, crop disease detection, locust detection, cassava disease detection. Those are projects that are happening now, that are happening now in partnership with the Google AI Center based in Ghana that's agriculture in the in the in, in the in the place around climate change flood forecasting we are now working in partnership with governments on flood forecasting and helping governments with flood forecasting helping with climate change we had a partnership with the Makerere University in Nairobi on climate change and climate forecasting weather forecasting patterns that also is going to help africa these are fundamental things that will affect agriculture would affect yield Outputs, fundamental. The second part is around health. We are partnering with a lot of partners in Africa on um, TB detection, cancer detection, um, reducing, uh, increasing quality childbirth um, rates, and helping mothers on when, during pregnancy. Detection, helping doctors with detection, early detection, using AI tools and services. So, that's even in the area of health. How do you simplify complexity in health using AI? And there are practical examples that we're doing now around breast cancer, around cancer, around TB, around uh, um, mothers, pregnant mothers, scans. So, there's a lot of work that is happening, even with visual impairment or eye diseases with AI as well. That is in the area of health. And I've already told you about the area of Of agriculture. I mean, in the area of, for example, with work, we not long ago, we launched um, a program called Interview Warm Up, which basically has embedded AI and voice assistant. And it can also do audio to text and text to audio speech recognition. That's all AI. And where you want to improve your interview skills, you can go to Interview Warm Up and you can learn how to improve your interview skills. And that's using AI, helping people get jobs. And these are all things that we've now launched. And even with the ads space, on ads, we've launched now Performance Max or PMAX that shows that how we're using AI tools and services to improve how how companies grow their businesses, how they serve their customers well at a profit. And all of that and how you develop insights. How do you create new ads using AI? How do you create new videos, content, content that works using AI? So all of that is happening now as we speak in Africa. All of that is happening now in Africa. Very
0: inspiring conversation. And it took a very unlikely beginning, but I like that. we went very deep into your life, your personal philosophy, and then slowly traversed into the impact of your career, the insights that you've learned, and then finally your work at Google. What does the next evolution I want to put you in view. What does the inner evolution of your professional and personal career look like going back into those fundamental things that you believe your calling is to be a preacher, a teacher,
1: and a healer? I would say for me now, next year, I turn 50. So now the things I wanted to transcend, I have transcended poverty, Inferiority complex, a wounding from my absent father, upper date, all of those things I feel I have transcended. And now my next goal is, how do I continue to democratize opportunity and increase transcendence for everyone? And how do I do that? Because I know to be young, gifted and free without opportunity is a devil's gift. What's the point? Why would you get freedom and no opportunity? So, mine is to really play in the democratizing of opportunity space and increase transcendence for everyone. And I kind of feel like God has been full of grace and mercy and kind to me and has favored me in a way. And so, now the next many years, if I live long, is to just continue to democratize opportunity. And increase transcendence for everyone is to breathe in, make sure others feel freedom that I feel, and make sure that they feel respected in my presence. That should never stop. And then to also feel like I don't lose being African, especially being communal, and that I know individualism and loneliness kills. I don't want to adopt the West individualism and chronic individualism and loneliness because I can see how it kills the West. I can see how they have to be medicated a lot because loneliness kills. So I don't want that. And I know Africans are socially connected. May we keep what makes us healthy, which is great relationships, great communal connectedness. May we keep that. And I want to be part of that. And I want to know that I am because we are. I want to be able, when Isaac... What Daniel asked me for time. I make time because we are being communal. And I hope that you will pay it forward to someone else as well and that you become communal and help others as well, but still demand competence, demand meritocracy, demand good values, but we become communal so that others may be free. Others may also transcend. Whatever is holding them in bondage, they might transcend. That is my wish. Actually, all I want... Till I die, is to do like John the Baptist. I just want to baptize that one who saves the many. I don't even, I don't want to be Jesus Christ. Jesus, that cross issue, and he has too many issues. I, I don't want to be him. I just want to be John. Yes, also, John got his head chopped. I understand that you can't stand for something and not be willing to suffer. If you stand for something, you're going to suffer. So be willing to suffer. But still, John managed to do the one thing that no one credits him for. He was willing to baptize the one who saves the many, And he was also willing to decrease so Jesus may increase. May I do that with my life. May I be willing to decrease so Isaac and Daniel may increase so that someone else may increase. I really want that for my life. And that's what I pray for, that may I have that humility and wisdom to democratize opportunity and be willing to decrease when it's my time to decrease so others may increase and not hog the limelight and not hoard the limelight and wanna be the only black in the boardroom, the only African in the boardroom. I don't like that. I think it's unhealthy for any African who wants to be the only. I think it's unhealthy and chronic and that needs to come to an end. This has been an exciting conversation with
0: Dr. Nzamo Masito of Google, Director of Marketing, Chief Marketing Officer at Google Africa. So some of the insights that have been truly mind-blowing, some of the jokes before the conversation itself, which are not um good enough to come on the conversation. <laughs> Enjoyable though. And it has been extremely humbling to have this conversation with you, Dr. Nzamo Masito. Thank you for honoring this invitation to the Change Africa Podcast.
1: Super. Thank you very much and I wish you well. May Africa continue to change through your content. Thank you. Thank you.
0: The Change Africa Podcast is produced by Isaac Abua and Daniel Merki. It is executive produced by Tim Yastratus. The theme music and digital production is by Daniel Quay and graphic design by Andrew Ayi. This podcast is a production of Nexen Media.